Hi, I'm Jonathan Pennington, and this is the Human Flourishing Podcast. This podcast is a repository of a wide variety of sermons, lectures, interviews, and other resources that I've recorded over the years. Today's episode is a sermon I preached at Sojourn East in Louisville, Kentucky. Now hear the word of the Lord from Titus 1, 5 through 16. The reason I left you in Crete was that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. An elder must be blameless, faithful to his wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer manages God's household, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, one who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught, so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. For there are many rebellious people, full of meaningless talk and deception, especially those of the circumcision group. They must be silenced because they are disrupting whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach, and that for the sake of dishonest gain. One of Crete's own prophets has said it, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. This saying is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply so that they will be sound in the faith and will pay no attention to Jewish myths or to the merely human commands of those who reject the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and consciences are corrupted. They claim to know God, but by their actions they deny Him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Everybody, good morning. My name is Stephen. I'm the family pastor here at Sojourn, where our goal is to reach people with the gospel, build them up as the church, and send them out into the world. This morning, we have the opportunity to welcome Dr. Jonathan Pennington to our pulpit. Dr. Pennington holds a PhD in New Testament studies from the University of St. Andrews, which is in Scotland, and anybody who studies over in Britain is really smart. He's an associate professor of New Testament interpretation at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. He's the author of the Sermon on the Mount and Human Flourishing, Reading the Gospels Wisely, Heaven and Earth in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus the Great Philosopher, and a host of other things. And he is also on the preaching staff at Sojourn Church East. If you can't tell, he is really, really, really smart. Also, uh, he's the guy, when we're going through the book of Matthew, uh, when anybody else in the world is like, What should we say about the book of Matthew? He's the guy they go to talk to. Uh, He is brilliant. Now, here's the thing. Not only is he brilliant, but he has also had a lasting impact on our church here particularly uh, because he was the professor of a lot of the guys who are pastors at our church. Uh, I can remember particularly for me where he would explain how we understand prophecy in the book of Matthew, talking about how a football pass is thrown, and then he would throw the pass and run to catch it in his classes. I can remember uh, my wife was smart enough to take a class that he taught on the book of Matthew, which is all in Greek, Uh, and I was not smart enough to take this class, but in our second or third date, we talked about it, and I proved I was not, I just wasn't so dumb that she could continue to date me. Um, And so we have 
not only a brilliant scholar, but somebody who's had a lasting impact on the way that we understand the scriptures, uh, the way that we preach. Um, and he's here this morning to go with us through the, this part of Titus. And so by your applause this morning, I, uh, can we thank God and welcome Dr. Jonathan Pennington. Hey, thanks so much. It's great to be with you this morning. Thank you for that kind introduction. You know, my wife, uh, Tracy, and I, we have been blessed with six kids, now aged 25 down to 16. And, of course, I'm aware of these 25 year, my 25-year career so far as a dad. I'm aware of my many faults and failures. I've tried to be life-giving, but, of course, have done it very imperfectly. And I often think about that there's going to be a time that will come when I will be gone. And sometimes I imagine what my kids will say as they sit around and reminisce about their old dad. And I I imagine they might mention some of my accomplishments and successes, but I think what will matter to them far more is what kind of person I was. And so I think about that. But I can guarantee you that one thing, no matter what else they might say, one thing I guarantee you my kids will definitely say about about me is this, that dad hated ordering through (laughs) drive-thrus. I guarantee you, and they would be right. I don't know exactly what it is, but 25 years of driving a van full of eight people, we've taken a lot of trips all over, especially Florida, and just any, we go out to eat a lot, something about that makes me super stressed out. A line of cars behind me, and one kid wanted sweet tea, not Coke. They didn't want pickles. They wanted this. And and it all just like super stresses me out. And so my kids, I'm sure, will remember about me that this is one thing I hated to do. But there's one place where they will remember that I didn't mind going through a drive-thru, and it's probably true for you as well, and it is Chick-fil-A. It's because everybody... In the family likes their food, doesn't matter how long the line is, it still goes amazingly quickly. I'm convinced that maybe they are paying somebody extra $17 an hour to sit in the back room and just pray that the line would keep going quickly. (laughs) Not sure what's happening. Um, And if there's ever anything wrong with your order, they're happy to take care of it as as well. And why is that? Why am I, why is that the only drive-through line that doesn't stress me out? Why is Chick-fil-A so superior of a restaurant? And why does every Chick-fil-A store make orders of magnitude more money than any other comparable company in America, even though they're closed one day of the week as compared to others? Well, besides being God's very own chicken, the reason <laughs> is apparently that every, it's apparent to everyone in the business world that Chick-fil-A is run by great leaders. It's run by people who care about character more than chicken and about people more than profits. And this great leadership that's been in this family business for all these decades trickles all the way down into the lowest employee. They've created a culture within that company of integrity so that they, everyone says, my pleasure and it's our pleasure to go there and take part of it, even for a a dad like me who has drive through PTSD. (laughs) Now here at Sojourn, I was thinking about this this week because here at Sojourn, we have just begun preaching through this little letter that the Apostle Paul wrote that we call the letter to Titus. 
It was sent to one of his own disciples, a young pastor, Titus, who he had left on the Mediterranean island of Crete. And we're calling this series, This Beautiful Church. And I love that title because Titus helps us catch a glimpse for God's vision for the beautiful church. His people, his own people who are engaged in the world on his mission of love and grace and beauty. And the church is flawed and full of many mistakes and failures, but it is his people and it is a beautiful place. Now here's the question this morning. What do my kids reflecting on me after my death, the goodness of Chick-fil-A and our text in Titus have to do with each other? Do all these ideas connect somehow? Well, I think they do. And here is how. God cares about his church and he cares about how it is led and by whom it is led. And it's all about character. It's not about skills. It's not about um, education level. It's not about anything like that. Intelligence, it's about character because character is beautiful. So God cares about his church. And he cares about how it's led and who is leading it because leaders matter for the health and flourishing of any organization, including God's people on earth. The problem is we have a problem. There is a problem. It's not just that God gives us instructions. There is a problem. The reality is that in every human society, every organization, every community, every group, every church, Sadly, sooner or later, there are troublemakers. Sometimes it's us ourselves, but there are troublemakers in every organization, every human problem, because humans are broken and sinful and limited, and we misunderstand each other, and we we intentionally do things to harm each other out of hurt, and we unintentionally do things, and the result is there are always problems in every human organization. And this is actually why Paul wrote this letter to the people at, to Titus and the people in Crete to hear it because he knew that there were going to be major issues in the church and were already major issues that needed some direction and help. And so I want you to look with me at the latter part of our text. I want to address this first, verses 10 to 16, to see specifically what the problem in this church was that Paul is concerned about. Look at starting in verse 10. He's writing, Paul says, for there are many rebellious people who are full of meaningless talk and deception, especially those of the circumcision group. And they must be silenced because they're disrupting whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach. And that for the sake of dishonest gain. In fact, one of Crete's own prophets has said it. Cretans are liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. This saying is true. I always kind of go, wow, (laughs) harsh word there. Therefore, rebuke them sharply so that they will be sound in the faith and will pay no attention to Jewish myths or to the merely human commands of those who reject the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and consciences are corrupted. They claim to know God, but by their actions they deny him. They're detestable, disobedient, unfit for anything good. Okay, every time I read those verses, I think, wow, that is intense, and I feel a little uncomfortable with how harsh sounding it is as well. But the reality is there are troublemakers. There are difficult people in every organization, including the church. Now, and there are different kinds of people that cause 
trouble. But I think what's really interesting to point out, and I might make you feel a little uncomfortable today too, but it's in love. But I want to point out to you that in scripture, the mo- the main kind of troublemakers are not what you and I would tend to think. In our church and in our society today, many people are concerned about liberalism. But here's a shocking truth that I want you to take to heart. Jesus and the apostles in the early church rarely have any confrontation or trouble with people to the left of them. They rarely have any confrontation or trouble with liberal people. Instead, the people Jesus and the church have the most trouble with and the ones who appear most of the time in the New Testament as trouble are actually, unexpectedly to us, very religious people. They're the biggest trouble in the church. The most obvious example of this in Jesus' own day were the Pharisees. Think about the Pharisees. I know you have a bad opinion about the Pharisees, and they were ultimately bad, but they were very morally upright people. They were very, very conservative people. They had very strong and passionate feelings about holiness and what was right. You had a mask crew and a non-mask crew, I'm sure, among the Pharisees, and and they were completely wrong because they lacked God's heart of compassion and love, despite being extremely conservative people and having a high view of the Bible just like us. And in the early church, in the days of the New Testament, after Pentecost, like in this letter to Titus, we have a comparable group, Paul mentions them there, there, the circumcision group. And if you were here at Sojourn when we preached through Galatians a couple years ago, this came up a lot. The whole issue was the circumcision group. And this refers to Jewish people who were in the early church who claimed to be followers of Jesus, but who insisted that to really be a Christian, you also had to obey the laws of Moses. That include being circumcised, eating a certain diet, etc. So these were very conservative people who claimed to know God, as verse 16 says, but actually did not really know God. And you see that just being conservative and having a high view of the Bible is not sufficient to see whether someone is truly godly. The New Testament makes clear that those are not the criteria by which we evaluate whether someone is godly. It's the fruit of the spirit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, and self-control. So you thought those verses sounded uncomfortable. I I hate to do it, but I have to maybe make you and I feel a little uncomfortable as well, because the most dangerous people we meet in the New Testament are the people who look and sound like spiritual people, but who, according to Paul, are actually rebellious, full of meaningless talk and deception. People are promoting various myths, stirring up and causing division among households and rejecting the truth all while claiming to be Christians. So that's a hard word. That's a challenging word, but we have to deal with it because it's exactly what Paul says is the trouble. And this is why Paul gives instructions to Titus to help him build a beautiful church where those are not the marks of what the leaders and the people are like, this divisiveness and this fighting, but instead people who are a different way. So if that's the problem, what's God's solution? What should the church leaders and others look like? Well, God's solution is people of character, people of character. Now, some of you know, there is a whole world out there 
of leadership books and seminars and gurus and podcasts. And I've read and listened to a fair amount of these things, and there's so much good in them. Every time I read a leadership book, I learn something more about myself and how to lead others well. But here's the question. What does God actually think about leadership? What's his vision for leadership in a church, an organization, a business, a school, whatever it is? You see, Scripture teaches that this beautiful church is Jesus's bride. I mean, that's an amazing metaphor that the church is actually Jesus's bride. And that's an image of love and affection and closeness and intimacy and deep covenantal commitment. So God cares about how his church is built and structured and run. But here's the kind of surprising thing in light of that, that When you look at the New Testament to say, what does God tell us about how to run church and what to do? It's remarkable how many things are not talked about. For example, we're never told anywhere in the New Testament what church architecture should look like, whether it should be a cathedral or a school auditorium or a hut or open air beside a river, whatever it is, all of those are welcome and okay. We also never see in the New Testament anything about worship music and style, whether there should be guitars or not, or psalms only, or drums, or whether we should do hymn books. The Bible doesn't have anything to say about those things. Those things are very open. And maybe most shockingly, when we look at what the Bible says about leadership, we are never given a standard that we would expect that the person needs to have a certain level of education or even that they have to have a certain level of giftedness. Of course, it's beneficial for people to be educated and to have some knowledge of the Bible and theology, et cetera, but it's not required. In fact, the first disciples or apostles were very uneducated people. And what marked them is that they were filled with God's spirit. And even Paul, who himself was a very highly educated, theologically educated person before he became a Christian, he acknowledges in his own life that he's not as attractive or winsome or as good of a public speaker as a lot of the people that are opposed to him, say, in the church in Corinth. But he says it doesn't matter because what matters is the spirit. So while God clearly cares about his church, He cares about his bride, this beautiful church. He doesn't instruct us about architecture or music or even these requirements for leaders. But what he does say is important, is absolutely essential, is that leaders among his people be people of character. And if you have a Bible, you can look back there with me. We'll also put them on the screen. But Paul gives us five things that would disqualify somebody from leadership and then seven things of what a leader should look like. Let's just run through them quickly. Look with me again at verse 7. Paul says, since an overseer manages God's household, he must be blameless. And here's how he defines this. Here's the five disqualifiers. Not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Now, these seem like no-brainers, but it is remarkable how often leaders in society or in church might represent these disqualifiers, to be overbearing. At the root of this is a selfishness that makes you run over others in speech. This is the kind of person who's a a bulldozer and they're also rigid. An overbearing person has to dominate in conversation and dominate the room. An overbearing person has to win whenever there is a disagreement and make sure that his or her opinion is heard. An overbearing person isn't curious 
They don't really listen. They just listen long enough so that then they can say what they want to say. And it's the opposite. It's the opposite of what Jesus said in the Beatitudes, that happier are those who are poor of spirit and are peacemakers. Another disqualifier is being quick-tempered. This is the kind of person that is explosive, quick to get offended and quick to get angry, whether it's someone in traffic or whether it's a post on social media or whether it's at one's own children. Lots of emotions spewing forth from this kind of person, and they make other people around them feel like they have to walk on eggshells. Not given to drunkenness. In fact, all of these disqualifiers really have to do with self-control. And this is what this is talking about here. It's not a prohibition of alcohol, but it's talking about a lack of wisdom and moderation, the the inability to have self-control in this area of alcohol. Violent. This, this disqualifies someone and the, and the, I, there's a couple old, old English words we don't use very much anymore. Pugnacious. It's a great word or a, pug, a pugilist. You know what a pugilist is? That's an old word for a boxer. This is this, this is this kind of person that either physically, hopefully not, but at least verbally, they're always fighting. They're always, they love the adrenaline rush of sort of getting into a debate with somebody and winning the argument. And then finally, the fifth disqualifier, that they're pursuing dishonest gain. Again, this is all about self-centeredness. This is a discontented person who is driven by greed. A good leader should be compensated well, but that can never be their motivation for leading, not driven by greed. Now, all five of those really, they overlap with each other and they paint a picture of a person who may actually be a very strong leader in the world's eyes, a very strong and influential person who gets his or her way done and maybe has a lot of followers on social media, maybe even a pastor. You can imagine pastors who are that way and they can build a big church with that kind of strength and, and power and, and you know always win the argument. But according to the scriptures, that kind of person in the church or in business is not a person of character. They're not filled with the spirit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and self-control. So Paul shifts then and gives us a picture, seven bits of what the character of a leader would look like. Look first back with me at verse six. He says, an elder must be blameless, faithful to his wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient, since an overseer manages God's household, he must be blameless. So did you see it there twice? Blameless. This is the first thing he emphasizes. And what this means is not that the the leader is sinless or never does anything wrong. Of course not. It means the person has a good and earned good reputation. This person is blameless, meaning that when people think about them and talk about them, They recognize this person deserves a good reputation. And it's not sufficient, you see, for the person just to be really skilled. Wow, he's a great business leader, but man, he really yells at his employees a lot. Or wow, he's a great preacher or deacon at the church, but man, he's a really stingy tipper at the restaurant (laughs) or treats a waitress or a waiter really poorly. Those are, that's a disconnect there. There's a lack of a good reputation there. A blameless leader has earned a good reputation because who he, who he is. In fact, as a little side note, one of the things I've noticed over the years is that you can tell a lot about a person's character by how they treat the people that are below them. 
whether it's someone in a service relationship at a restaurant, if it's an employee, their own children, you can tell a lot about a person's character, not by how they relate to their peers. Anybody can look good and relate to their peers or someone above them, but how do they treat the people that work for them or they're in some social sense are below them? And unfortunately, this happens a lot even in the church with celebrity pastors and leaders. I'm always very curious to pay attention when I meet someone, especially somebody famous, how, how do they treat the people that work for them and how they treat to the people that serve them? If they don't treat them well, then I don't respect that person no matter what their accomplishments are. And it's really sad to see all of this often happens and celebrity is corrupting to the soul. On a positive example of this, not a negative example, at East, we just had Sandra McCracken, who you, we sing a lot of her songs. She's a very famous, wonderful worship songwriter and leader. And my daughter, Mandy, who's on staff at East and, and leads worship there as well, she got to spend a little bit of time with Sandra. And honestly, I had not, I had not known Sandra McCracken before, and I was a little worried because she was so famous that it was going to really burst my daughter's bubble. But I was so happy that she was even more beautiful behind closed doors than she was than she is on stage even. So I was so encouraged that that's not always the case, but a lot of times it is, that famous people and great leaders behind closed doors or with people lower than them are not good people, and God says that should not be. To be blameless is to have a positive reputation, and Paul is saying this has got to mark the Christian leader or else the leader will bring discredit to the whole church. When a leader is like this, the whole church suffers. And notice particularly in these verses that Paul really focuses this blameless requirement on the most personal thing you could, on the person's own household, how he treats his wife and children. And those verses there are you know, pretty challenging. It says that the, the elder must be faithful to one's wife. Not This means not flirting, not having affairs of physical or emotional type, not inconsistent, not being nicer to women other than his own wife, etc. And then probably the most challenging is that it says that the elder must have children who believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Now, that seems in some ways a little unfair because after all, you know, you can't make a child believe and they have to have to believe. And I, and I just a couple of things to understand what this means. This is not talking necessarily about adult children, right, who have their own agency and responsibility for their own lives. And also that word believe can also just as well be translated as faithful. And I think the idea here is that one's household, both relationship to for an elder, relationship to wife and relationship to children is intentional and careful and thoughtful. It's not going to be perfect. You can't read this as if they're going to be perfect. In fact, here's a really sad irony, is that when we put pressure on elders and pastors' families to be perfect, that's the worst thing that we can do for them. Especially when a pastor or an elder or others put pressure on a child, maybe especially a pastor's kid, to be perfect, almost always that completely destroys the child's faith. So the point of this is not that these people are going to be perfect, but that there's an intentionality, there's a carefulness, and that the children and wife of the elder would not say that the person, the, the man is perfect, but that he is intentional and caring and stepping towards caring for his own family. And why? Because 
if one can't manage their own household well, how can they manage the household of God well? That's what Paul says here in Titus as well as in 1 Timothy. And then he goes on more quickly in rapid fire fashion. Look with me at verse eight, the other ones. Rather, this person must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who's self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. So they're hospitable. That is, this is where our word hospital comes from, actually. It means you're generous and open. You care for others. Loves what is good. A good leader rejoices in truth, goodness, and beauty and encourages that in people. They're self-controlled. They're steady, reliable, and dependable. And taking these other two together, upright and holy, they're a genuinely godly person. And then he sums it up in number seven with discipline, which is, again, just this overall character of self-control. They're not controlled by whims and passions in food or drink or money or relationships, but instead are people of self-discipline. Now, all of this is not to be understood as a to-do list or a checkbox that everyone has to do perfectly. Again, Christian leaders are marked by character, but they're not sinless. And the purpose of all this is found then in verse 9, the last verse to look at here. It says, This leader must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. There's a reason for all this. It's not so that the leader becomes famous themselves because of their character, but it's so that they can function as a leader in God's people to encourage us, to build us up, and to correct when things are wrong. I love how John Calvin says that a pastor needs to have two voices, one for gathering sheep and the other for driving away wolves and thieves. And that is the very difficult calling of a pastor. Now, again, we have to understand that Christian leaders are still human people. They will say stupid things. They will do stupid things. They will make mistakes. Christian leaders don't become magically a different species of human, but they have lived long enough and they manifest character enough that they're worthy of following. I mentioned before that I've read, you know, a decent amount, increasing number of sort of leadership books, and there's a really famous one that uh, many people know of by Jim Collins called Good to Great. And Collins looked at a number of Fortune 500 companies. He looked at all of them. And he said, what makes the one stand out in this particular way? And he found, based on the criteria of sort of a long-lasting, dynamic leadership culture, he only found 11 of the Fortune 500 companies that actually met his criteria. And so then he looked at those 11 and he looked at what was true of the leaders, the CEOs of each of those special companies. And he came up with a taxonomy of what the different, like different levels of leaders and how they function. And he found that those, he made this level five, the highest form of leadership is what marked all 11 of these CEOs. And here's the question, what were they like? What is a level five leader like? Were they the most intelligent? Were they the most talented? Did they have the best background? Did they have a Harvard MBA? Were they most dynamic speakers or visionaries? Were they most attractive? No, none of those things marked these best leaders. Do you know what marked them? He said, a powerful mixture of personal humility and indomitable 
will. That is, they were clear and strong leaders, but not for their own gain. They were ambitious, but for their organization, not for themselves. And they had grit. They were humble and they had grit. What a powerful testimony I think this is to God's common grace in the world, that even in the business world, you would think the most dynamic and effective leaders are these people that are about skills, but even in the business world, it's about character, the character of humility and grit. And so, what in the world do we do with all of this today and this week? Some of you here, are church leaders, and this applies directly. Some of you here are leaders in other environments, maybe at a school, maybe in a business, maybe in government. I think these are still great calls for you to be a person of character. But friends, I don't want you to go home today just with more information about what a Christian leader should look like in the church. I want us to realize something this morning that applies to everyone, and I'd sum it up this way that this picture of godly character is a requirement for some, but it's an invitation to all. It's a requirement for leaders, but this is an invitation to every Christian. Because the kind of person that's described here is not a magical, super talented, special alien creature. This vision for being these ways is the vision for what it means to be a mature Christian. This vision is required for those who want to lead God's household well, but it's painting a picture for what we all long for. It's for the life of flourishing that we all long for. And so today, whether you are a teenager or elderly, whether you are a blue-collar worker or a green-collar worker or a corner office executive, whether you're a teacher or a mechanic or a stay-at-home mom or dad, I want to ask you, don't you want to be this kind of person? the kind of person whose life is marked by these character traits that we just saw, because there's so much life and goodness and flourishing to be found in following Jesus's way to take his yoke upon us. I mean, are people who are overbearing and quick-tempered and lack self-control, are they really happy and flourishing? They're not. Are people, in effect, are you happy when you act those ways? But when we live in Christ's way, when we are faithful to our spouses and our children, when we're hospitable, when we're self-controlled, when we're upright, when we love what is good, there is so much joy. There is so much freedom to be found in those ways, which are Jesus' ways. And so I don't want you to leave today again with just more information. I want you to feel the invitation that God is giving to you today to learn his ways, to walk in ways of flourishing and life, which are depicted in this text. And let me kindly challenge you to do something, to do that eulogy exercise I began with, thinking about what your children or spouse or friends would say about you after you're gone. After you have died, what will your kids or husband or wife or coworkers or employees or bosses say about you if they could be completely honest? Will they talk about your accomplishments and successes? Maybe, that's okay, that's fine. But what will they say about who you really were? Your character, 
and your relationships. That's what matters. That's what God sees and cares about. God doesn't need any of our talents or money. He cares about our character. That's what matters to us as fellow humans as well. In fact, maybe if you might be so bold at lunch today, why don't you ask a friend, if you can, if your relationship can handle that, you think, ask a friend or family member what is most true about you. So let me just lovingly invite you into this beautiful vision. It's given as requirements for the church, but it's an invitation to all. And as we wrap up these thoughts, we're reminded that Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he had gathered around these future leaders with himself. And what did he say to them? He said, this is my body, which is broken for you. And he gave it to them. He said, take and eat. And he said, this is my blood. He shared this cup of wine with them and said, this is my blood, which is poured out to make a new covenant with you. And what I, what I want you to reflect on as we go into the Lord's Supper in just a moment here is that Jesus formed his bride on the earth by giving of, his, of himself. He modeled this humility and this love. When he had every right to just be exalted for his skills, what he cared the most about was his humility and his love, and he invites us into the same. So let me pray, and then we'll sing as well. Let me pray. Thank you for listening to the Human Flourishing Podcast. To learn more or get in touch with me, visit my website, jonathanpennington.com.